0: It's Morris is buried in 158 VJ, uh, 158 and a half VJ. And the half means it's a half with grave. And it's a very poor grave indeed. And uh, on the 61st anniversary, or a few days after the 61st anniversary, I'd found out where the grave was. I went up and photographed it. And on the grave were three lilies and a little card attached to them. And on the card was a a little verse which he scribbled on something at one time, and it's something like this, was it for this, the wild geese spread, the grey wing on every tide, was it for this, the brayman spread, and Fitzmaurice almost died.
1: New York Evening Graphic, Thursday, April 12th, 1928. Report from Baldonnell Airdrome, Dublin, Ireland. Two Germans and a laughing Irishman today attempted a flight that no man before has ever accomplished, a westward crossing of the North Atlantic. At 5.30 a.m. today, the trim gray monoplane Bremen glided down the broad runway at Baldonnell Field and started towards Mitchell Field, Long Island, or Heaven. In it were Baron Gunther von Hünefeld, Captain Hermann Kohl, and Commandant James Fitzmaurice of the Irish Free State Air Force. The plane passed out to sea over Costello Bay at 7.05 a.m. It was performing perfectly, but visibility was poor. The Bremen, it was estimated, was going at 75 miles per hour, and it had made the 110 miles between Dublin and Costello Bay in one hour and 27 minutes. Within 36 hours, they hope to be in New York, the first flyers to accomplish a feat that in the past 15 months has baffled four attempts.
2: James Fitzmaurice, Gunther von Hohnefeld and Hermann Cole took off from Baldonnell on that April morning in 1928. No one really expected to see them again. Previous attempts at the crossing had claimed a number of lives. Brendan Ellis, whom you heard at the start of the programme.
0: First of all, the very first attempt was made, by the way, before even an attempt from America. It was made by two Englishmen and they took off from, what was it, uh, East Church, I think, uh, and they got as far as a few miles beyond Hollyhead and they fell into the sea, so that wasn't a very serious one. But uh, Now, the first to have a go, serious one, was a great French friar called Nungasa, and he and a, another Frenchman called Coley took off from Paris one morning. That was in 19... To may, I think, May 1927, and they were never heard of again. They may, in fact been the first to cross the Atlantic bits of what could have been from their plane has been found off the coast of Maine, which would mean they got through American tidal waters. The next flight after that was Princess Lobenstein with two Englishmen as her her pilots, and they disappeared and there were no more that year there were three uh, two other flights or one two plane flight and one single plane flight. 1927, Miss Morrison, a man called Macintosh, took off from Baldonnell, and about six, seven hundred miles out, they knew they weren't going to make it, and they came back. Now, the amusing little bit about that is that uh, I used to, I suppose, boast about knowing an airman, see, and I got a terrible time in school because my man had funked it. <laughs> uh, however, he came back, but I didn't know at that time that two German planes had taken off from Dassault. Now Dassault is of interest because it was the only airport in the world with a concrete runway and it was made specially for the Atlantic attempt because the great hazard was taking off overloaded with fuel. Now they set off and the first plane was the Bremen, owned by the Baron von Hennefeld and uh, piloted by a man called Losa and Herman Cole. <coughs> uh, the other was the Europa. It had another flight on it. By the way, they had a passenger, a an American, I think he was a journalist. Uh, they didn't get very far. They had to come back and they made a crash landing. Uh, damaged the plane, but no one was hurt. But um, the Bremen went out quite a long way and began to realise against the Ameri- uh, Atlantic weather, they wouldn't make it. Uh, fuel would give out before they ever got there so they turned back. Remember at that stage five men had died and two women and the last two to die by the way were um, Elsie Mackay who was Lord Hinchcliffe's daughter and um, uh, her pilot Hinchcliffe and they took off just four weeks before the Bremen
3: flight. Well uh, originally uh, it was probably envisaged as an all German effort uh, it was just ten years after the war, and the Germans were trying to re-establish themselves. Um, it, the effort was probably being supported. In fact, it was being supported by the Nord German Lloyd uh, shipping company. Uh, via uh, the, the von felt the, the uh, he was actually a passenger on the flight. He was also in terminal illness. He's only thirty-eight years old. And uh, he uh, promoted it probably without thinking of what the consequences would be if they actually succeeded, because the chances of not succeeding then uh, were much greater. Uh, the odds against you were much greater than, than uh, 50%. But um, the the shipping company had made kind of private inquiries. They were out, of course, for as much publicity as they could get as to how it would go down in New York if uh, two Germans landed out of the blue from Germany or from Ireland or from Europe. (laughs) Uh, And the feedback that they got was that they wouldn't be too welcome. It's only 10 years after the war. So then they had a great idea. uh, How would it be if there was an Irishman aboard? And uh, Jimmy Walker, of course, was the mayor of New York at the time, and that would be totally different. Uh, So together with the fact that Fitzmaurice has already... Uh, um, made an attempt, that he had also for several years been trying to mount his own attempt. He, He had actually even gone to the extent of getting financial backing and attempting to buy an aircraft for the trip. So he was known to be thoroughly involved, the risks notwithstanding. So that's probably the reason that he was accepted.
2: That was Michael Keating, an aviation historian. Since crossing the Atlantic was so hazardous, what kind of men were they to attempt it? James Fitzmaurice's daughter, Pat, was a small child at the time of the flight.
4: I remember him as um, a great person to be with, a fun person, and he was a super father, sort of... But it was all fun because he he never disciplined. He left the discipline to my mother because he, 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 he liked to enjoy life. He definitely was dedicated to flying. He had been from his early teens when he was in the RFC, and he was very definitely involved with flying all the time. And there was always mad schemes in his head, as far as I can gather. This is all hearsay, of course, because I was only six. Um, and when, when they made their first attempt with Mac, Macintosh, he was determined he was going to do it again. Um, and so, of course, naturally jumped at the opportunity when Cole came along or rather, Honefeld came along with, it, with the opportunity to fly with the three of them over. He was definitely a man before his time, and so far that he used to have uh, terrific schemes, uh, got impatient with people when they didn't see along with him, also couldn't get anything off the ground because he was lack of funds, as that period was.
2: And Hermann Kohl's widow is now in her 90s and lives in Munich.
4: First of all, he was a passionate flyer. He wanted to prove that the Germans really had something to show in the air. a passionate flyer, Because he was such a passionate flyer, it was really important for him to accomplish this flight.
2: He was, first of all, and in a special way, full of humor. He always tried to see life from the best side. And he was always very consistent when he had something to do.
4: He always saw it through. It was his reason for living, the only thing in his life. And in a
2: 1978 television documentary, this is how Colonel Fitzmaurice's sister May spoke about him.
4: Hearing people talk, and the general public, on bus uh, trams they were in those days, everybody thought he was so foolhardy, uh, particularly being a man with responsibilities. He was married and had a ch- young child, but I was always confident that he would succeed because uh, he was so keen, so very, very keen, on, on some adventurous flight like that.
3: Fitzmaurice is, of course, an excellent pilot. He was one of the world's first uh, postal pilots. Uh, they set up, uh, the British set up immediately after the war, uh, a postal service for the use of the uh, armed forces and there was a trip uh, set up from England. Uh, I'm not certain where in England, but it went to Cologne, and uh, that was set up uh, in 1919, 1920, and Fitzmaurice was selected as a pilot for that. But the the requirements for a pilot then were different from the requirements of a pilot now. The, The main attributes were good eyesight and determination, uh, and to 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 a certain extent to disregard the risks, it it wasn't a scientific business. It was a most unscientific business. Luck was luck was the the uh, the, the good eyesight, luck, and a uh, 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 determination, uh, brass neck. Really, we went out three times with my father to uh,
0: Baldonnell. Twice the plane was there, and once we were allowed to look into it and I picture as clear as a bell now, if I see the Bremen again, I may be proved wrong, but I have a picture of two big tanks, I didn't know what they were, behind the, the cockpit with a narrow gap, and the far side of that was a very thin black cushion on what appeared to be a plank seat with another one hanging on the wall behind, and that's where the barn sat <laughs> for 36 and a half hours and made the sandwiches and the coffee and wrote poetry. He was an extraordinary looking man. Uh, I don't think he took any notice of us at all. He was a very aloof individual, but uh, he wore a monocle too. And he was very, very scary because the skin on his face was tight and he was a horribly yellowy colour. He had cancer and was dying. um, And absolutely determined to make this flight. They, they were all three of them were very, very serious. They'd have come back again if they didn't think they could. Um, Cole, uh, Fitzmaurice uh, rather, was my idea of a dashing airman. You know, in those days, uh, every kid knew about the Red Barn and all the rest of it. He looked the part. Uh, what do you call him? Cole did not. Cole was a tubby, uh, little man. Uh, who had spoken English and uh, seemed to have his pockets full of lemons boiled sweets.
2: The three men were absolutely determined that this flight would succeed. The late Johnny Marr was flight sergeant at Baldonnell, and in the same 1978 TV documentary, he told how the Bremen arrived at Baldonnell.
5: I heard actually that that application had been made by the Germans. For a flight to take place from Germany to America via Ireland. And they requested the, to use the old airdrome, the old, air drum, the old uh, RAF airdrome at Ardenmore. When the Air Corps got to hear of this, they wrote back or sent word back to say that Ardenmore was absolutely unfit for the type of thing they wanted. You know, it hadn't been used in an airdrome for years. So requests came back then for Baldonnell to be used. And the aircraft the, the, was, a, was the Bremen, the Yonkers. So permission was given for them to use Baldonnell. And uh, a date was set that the aircraft was to come, and three days before the arrival of the aircraft, two mechanics arrived, the two engineers, Paul Langrish and Alfred Weller. We, allotted them, a hangar number three hangar, which was empty of uh, air-core aircraft. And uh, the two mechanics arrived with a whole load of spares. They had seven gross <laughs> of Bosch spark plugs, and they never even changed the plug on, on the aircraft before it started on the Atlantic. And they also had two sides of smoked bacon, and uh, lots of jam and sausages and mustard and all this. So we allotted them, They I requested to, could they sleep in the hangar? The same hangars as the aircraft. So we turned in office and got them beds and all, and uh, we also allotted them as stores. So they slept in the hangar with the aircraft. Mm-hmm. The aircraft was a, a W33 Yonkers, and the engine was an L5 310 horsepower engine. And they had a cruiser speed of 130 miles an hour, mm-hmm. roughly and they had no radio whatsoever or no contact with the outside world. And uh, did they
6: make any trial flights in it?
5: No, never made a trial flight at all. That's what I was telling you, that they're, they're so positive about this thing. They did one run up the night before the actual flight and uh, I suggested to uh, Langrish I said, she should change those plugs. You got, you got seven grows that are blinking things there. Why don't you change them? Oh, he said, no. He said, because she's had to do on the flight from Jeremy, which is a long flight to Dublin. No, I no, He said the plug. I'm satisfied with the condition of the engine now.
2: But there was more to the flight than just the technicalities. Fitzmorris, an officer in the Free State Air Corps, had difficulty in getting leave to go.
0: For all the year before, he'd been negotiating to get permission to go on the flight, and in the end, uh, actually I'll show you the, the, the army records on it, in the end, on the 4th of April, he was granted leave of absence by the then Minister for Defence Desmond Fitzgerald,
1: but off-duty. On Rin Kassanta, an Irrin Generalte Gettanaparke Baljatlie, on Hjarrula Dabran, Miele Commandant Fitzmaurice, your application for leave of absence for the purpose of undertaking a transatlantic flight is granted. Leave takes effect as from today. It is to be expressly understood, and is a condition upon which this leave is granted, that you undertake the proposed flight, or any extension of it, at your sole risk, and for the purposes of the Pensions Act 1923 and 1927, or for any other purpose, any loss of life, Injury, disablement or disability arising out of or consequent on the said flight will not be considered to have been caused in the course of duty or to be a ground for any claim whatsoever against the state or military authorities. S. O'Higgins, Colonel, Chief Staff Officer.
0: So he had a wife and a six-year-old daughter, a lovely kid, and um, he had to do something about it. And he had an idea himself in Oliver St. John Gogarty, book Mulligan of Ulysses. And he went to Cosgrave and suggested that he might be the first European president to send his greetings by air. He
1: fell for it. To the Adjutant General Personnel, 10th of the 4th, 28. This is to inform you that Commandant J. Fitzmaurice has been granted ordinary leave of absence as from the 4th Inst on the authority of the Chief of Staff for the purpose of undertaking a transatlantic flight. The period for which leave will be granted by him cannot be stated at present. S. O'Higgins, Colonel, Chief Staff Officer.
0: So when Miss Forrest took off, he was an official courier, which explains his extraordinary garb. You know, did you ever see anyone playing a, a plane in army uniform, complete with a sword and spurs?
2: The problem now was to get the aircraft off the ground. For such a long-distance flight, the aircraft carried a lot of fuel, and every additional ounce was crucial. Captain Kevin Byrne of the Air Corps.
6: There wasn't much space in the back, and the facilities were just really flasks and sandwiches and a little bit of chocolate, not much more. Enough to keep them fed for the flight, but not terribly comfortable. Keep in mind this was a state-of-the-art piston-engined aircraft. It was only 50-odd feet in span and something like 35 feet long. That's a very small size, about the same size as a modern twin engine piston aircraft. You wouldn't consider crossing the Atlantic easily with an aircraft with two engines, let alone with one. It only had, after all, a two-bladed propeller like we have on the Cessna aircraft here in the Air Corps.
3: The Uh, The problem basically was that the aircraft of the day uh, were very underpowered and this particular one of course was awfully overloaded. It sounds strange to be overloaded with with 600 gallons of fuel Uh, but everything depends on the size of the aircraft and for that aircraft it was gross 5.5 tonnes, it was a massive load. They had to actually extend the aerodrome in Baldonnell to take in another field to let them take off, and they hardly climbed at all after takeoff. So that you can see, with the with the uh, um, operation barely possible, depending on such factors as the barometric pressure and uh, a few pounds of extra fuel or a, a few revolutions on the engine, that was the difference between success and failure. And it would have been ferocious failure because she would have burned like a torch if she if she forced landed with that much fuel aboard. So they did everything they could. They got the airplane into perfect condition. They had uh, two mechanics with them from Germany. Uh, everything was tuned up to the last. They made an attempt to to prevent icing by oiling the putting paraffin oil on the outside skin, and then they looked at everything they could possibly. Discard to get the weight down. There, there were no uh, what we would call essential furnishings aboard. There were no cushions on the seats or uh, there was uh, no uh, flashlights. There probably was a flashlight because that would be absolutely essential, but there were none of the things. They looked even at, at, at pencils and Writing pads They just took thin pads, not paper as heavy, and you kept the pad as thin as you could. And one of the final things they did, somebody at and saw them taking a few oranges for sustenance. The trip was 36 hours, a day and a half. And for food they took a few oranges, and somebody at the last minute was actually peeling the oranges before they were handed aboard.
5: Well, Captain Cole was portly and, uh, you know, he, he's a fairly large waist. And when he went to sit in the pilot's seat, he couldn't fit in it due to the armrests. So he simply took a fire axe that was on the side of the aircraft and chopped the armrest off, which we were disgusted with because we could have got a hacksaw, you know, and made a neat job. of And he also took the cushion, which was uh, about four inches high, and threw it out the window.
2: With everything ready on the morning of the 12th of April, 1928, the Bremen was rolled out of hangar number three.
6: Because of the shape of the aerodrome here and the prevailing wind, it was decided that it would take off outside the hangar from which we're uh, talking now. You see, the concrete area here at Baldonnell has been increased uh, dramatically over the last 35, 40 years or so. The concrete area then was only the bit we see here around the hangars. And don't forget, because of the great amount of fuel on the aircraft, there was a tremendous weight on the undercarriage. Therefore it needed a long run to take off and it needed to get uh, speed moving as quickly as possible so it wouldn't get bogged down. To that end it was decided to start the engine running fairly close to the hangar, run it out as long as the concrete would allow and then keep it going in a southwesterly direction, roughly heading of 230 degrees, but there were odd spots of soft ground on the field and they had to be filled in so they put sleepers in certain areas and they walked the land very carefully to Determine exactly the takeoff run required, and they mark this with flags at various intervals. Because the most critical thing, of course, in the long run is deciding are you going to make it or are you not. In a
2: 1947 interview on Radio Aaron, Colonel Fitzmaurice remembered the takeoff.
7: Well, at the moment of takeoff, we had the whole of the cabinet out there to see us safely into the air, and uh, we were very perturbed about the takeoff. But We had a certain amount of confidence in the aircraft that we were flying. And we just battled through with it. And we did get safely airborne. We got into the air. And once we got off the ground, I was confident that we would make the deal. Yes. And we would do something that nobody ever had done before. That is, the successful crossing of the North Atlantic by heaven aircraft.
2: And writing later about the takeoff, he said,
1: It seemed to me that my whole life to date had been nothing more than a preparation for this moment.
2: One of the earliest film sound recordings captured the takeoff of the Bremen.
0: got out, and my recollection of it is is one of gloom. It seemed to be a most depressing morning. Uh, Everyone was gone when we got there. There had been a huge crowd with every cabinet minister, I believe, there to join the the business. Farewell. And uh, all we met was one soldier we can remember very well, because he told us that they had killed a sheep taking off. And that was a terrible omen. And the whole place seemed to be depressed. Actually, they hadn't killed the sheep. They had <coughs> jumped it, but it was a big incident. There's a lot of stuff about it. Still, that's all I remember of it. And it was extremely gloomy, and we went home feeling that they were gone forever. We'd never seen them again.
5: When we got outside, it was a beautiful night. Weller said to me, he says, Johnny, he said, You say pilot, pilot's good. Engine good, I work on the engine. Airframe good. I walk in the airframe. Weather good. Why not America?
3: When they took off first, there's a little valley uh, in uh, in the foothills of the Dublin, the north end of the foothills of the Dublin mountains, uh, the, the Crooksling, the valley at Crooksling, and the takeoff was roughly in that direction, roughly westerly, and uh, when they had taken off, it was a question of either going round the mountains or over them or through this valley, and to turn at low altitude uh, and very heavily overloaded, it doesn't improve the chances of you living to an old age. And uh, uh, they weren't able to climb. The aircraft was already wide open. The th- the, the, they had every revolution they could get. So they were left with the option of going through the valley, which I believe they did, uh, which must have meant that the ground and there, that that valley, the. the the uh, low part of the valley is, is probably uh, maybe only 150 or 200 feet. Uh, but they were only, I believe, at a f- several... They were still under 1,000 feet at the west of Ireland. It took them, it took them two hours to climb a 1,000 feet, which meant that they were barely perceptibly climbing. But, I mean, so long as you're climbing at all, you're OK. So long as the ground isn't climbing faster. Well, unlike the modern aircraft, which are very fully equipped with modern
6: avionics... They had very little by way of instruments, and the art of blind flying, as it was called then, was still very much in its infancy. The normal routine instruments haven't changed that much over the years. They have, for example, an airspeed indicator and a compass, although they didn't have the gyro compass. Uh, the art of gyro compass uh, work wasn't that good at the time. And they had, of course, an altimeter to tell them the altitude at which they were flying over either the land or the sea, as was going to become important during the flight. What they didn't have was any radio navigation aids because the the items just didn't exist. They weren't invented by then. And they also had difficulty in maintaining their own um, attitude while flying in cloud. And this was a, a point that was uh, to become of great importance during the flight. Modern aircraft have a device called the artificial horizon. And by looking at it, by not looking out the, the window, so to speak, by looking at the instrument alone, you, you can decide where you are what the attitude of the aircraft is, whether you're turning left or right, climbing or descending, all these things become apparent with sufficient training. None of this was invented at the time. They had a thing called an inclinometer, which was really little more than a a spirit level at the time. Luckily, at the time, both Fitzmaurice and Cole had taken uh, great care to practice the art of blind flying. So they were quite experienced at flying in cloud and above and then again descending through cloud again.
0: After that... They had a very easy flight for the first, I think, about 14 hours. Everything went beautifully, the engine went beautifully, the weather was good, everything was lovely, and suddenly they see this enormous bank of cloud. Now, that would mean that they were going to fly into turbulence and icing and everything else. By the way, the the plane was washed down with paraffin before it left as an anti-icing device. They had quite an easy flight up to that, and then they ran into this tremendous storm and fog.
1: As darkness approached, we soon realized that what we thought was a mountain range was an extremely dangerous jet-black cloud bank reaching way up to over 20,000 feet and obviously of the ice-forming type. We were soon flying into the fringe of a cold front and rightly suspected we were in for the very worst. We climbed to 6,000 feet and continued flying in a westerly direction, rocked and buffeted by the force of the storm area, we'd entered. It was now pitch-black darkness, and we were reduced entirely to instrument flying. It was the final test of skill and endurance which developed into an absolute nightmare, as hour followed hour without any sign of a let-up. Curl and I alternated at the controls at half-hourly intervals. At the end of each spell, we were completely exhausted, both physically and mentally, and we had the feeling that the instruments were actually grinning at us.
2: And this is how von Honefeld described it.
1: In the meantime, the storm had become so terrific that the machine nearly stood upright in the air. It was dashed about like a frail little bird we have observed in a high wind. Storm, fog and night. A few minutes of sleep, now for Curl, then for Fitzmaurice. Turn and turn about.
2: The storm wasn't their only problem. Some of their instruments froze and Fitzmaurice had to do some on-the-spot repairs. Then the cabin lights went out and they had to use torches. But worse was to come.
1: In flashing my torch to locate my chart, I noticed that the floor of the cockpit seemed to be covered in oil. In addition, the main oil tank gauge, let into the face of the tank, showed that the tank was less than a quarter full. I immediately turned on the cock from the reserve oil tank to the main. Soon I noticed that the main tank was registering full. I shut off the cock, controlling the supply of oil from the reserve to the main tank. Shortly afterwards, I again noticed that the main tank was registering quarter full. I almost jumped out of my skin. We seemed to be losing oil badly somewhere and such oil troubles had brought me a great deal of grief during my flying career. I pointed the whole matter out to Curl, who looked most perturbed. I decided that a slight spot of investigation was called for. I opened the roof of the cockpit cabin, and, standing on my seat, pushed my body through the opening, hanging on for grim life in the terrific force of the slipstream. Slowly, I forced my legs into the opening between the two large petrol tanks in the rear of the cockpit and eased myself forward till I could get my head under the wheel of my control column in order to get underneath the dashboard and the main tank. And the good curl was much too plump for such gymnastics.
2: Whatever its source, the oil leak seems to have caused no real problems. And then, as the dawn broke...
1: Looking down, I saw black and white patches which looked like early morning fog over the ocean. This I pointed out to Curl and we decided to go down and investigate. We throttled back the engine and came down to about 100 feet from the surface. Putting the machine into a steep turn, we shot off a white, very light signal and were amazed to discover that we were over land.
2: Curl believed that they were over Greenland but Fitzmaurice didn't think they could have been blown so far north and reckoned it was Labrador. So they turned southeast following the course of a frozen river, believing that this would lead them to the Gulf of St. Lawrence and civilization.
1: After several hours flying on this southeasterly course, as we were forging our way through a very heavy blizzard, I saw through a rift in the snowstorm immediately below what appeared to be a large frozen lake in which a ship was iced in. I yelled at Curl, ''A ship! A ship!'' It became blanked out just as suddenly as it had appeared. Throttling back the engine, we came down lower and again found it. It was a lighthouse on a very small island, completely surrounded by a frozen lake or sea. We observed smoke being blown from the chimney of the living quarters, and a husky dog team lay harnessed to a sleigh just outside. Curl and I almost wept with joy and relief. We shook hands silently and prepared for a landing, which we could see was going to be an extremely tricky business.
2: They had reached Greenley Island off the coast of Labrador. They landed the Bremen on a frozen reservoir. Cole was slightly injured, and the Bremen ended up with its propeller in the ice and damaged. But they were safe. Greenley was a remote place. The nearest telegraph was on the mainland at Point Armour, but the lines were down and it took some time before the world knew of their success.
5: So the two Germans arrived over at my house at 8 o'clock that night and uh, Wella had a picture of Captain Cole in full German uniform. So uh, we had a drink in my house and then we went down to the mess. And word came through at about 12 o'clock or... No, round about 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning, word came through that the machine had been sighted over Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia. And on hearing this, Weller went up to Colonel Russell and handed him the photograph. And Colonel Russell said, no, he said, I I won't take the photograph now, he said, because on our reckoning and the way we worked this out, they couldn't have got anywhere near, you know. So we carried on talking and drinking and... uh, Word came through, I think it was around uh, about f- half past four in the morning, to say that the machine had crashed at, uh, at Greenley Island.
2: Had they flown on for just a short while longer, they would have reached the airport at St John's and the world would have known of their success immediately. But as it was, the world came to them. Reporters and camera crews descended on Greenlee, and a plane was dispatched to bring the three flyers to New York. They were now great international heroes and were treated as such everywhere they went.
1: New York. Fifth Avenue is lined to the curb with cheering humanity as the procession winds past. Atlantic Flyers presented with the Congressional Medal of Honor. Chicago. At the Soldiers' Field Stadium, 100,000 people gathered to give their flyers their just tribute. Springfield, Illinois. Flyers drop flags from plane to honour Abraham Lincoln's birthplace.
2: And so it went on. When they returned to Europe, the welcome was the same. In O'Connell Street, women fainted in the crush, and President Cosgrave and members of the Executive Council turned out to greet them. In Germany, Cole's hometown placed a plaque on his birthplace and named a street after him. Why were they such heroes? Well, the flight wasn't just a daredevil escapade.
0: After the flight, I think one of the most interesting things is the comments of all of them, but one put it very well, that was uh, Herman Cole, (coughs) He said, now the Atlantic can be flown and we can envisage commercial flights of larger planes carrying large numbers of people and, and um, goods. All that's required, he said, is to have a proper radio system between planes, ships and shore. Now, two years later, that's exactly what the King Smith did. He was practically navigated across the Atlantic by the SS, Pennsylvania in particular, but ships all over the place. And sure, and he carried radio, the Bremen didn't. But uh, they, then later on in 1938, see, after that then they started talking about Atlantic services. And the thinking seemed to be that if you were flying across the water, you should have uh, something that would land on it. Its morals looked on that as an aviation cul-de-sac, which it was. <coughs> but um, in nineteen thirty-eight, uh, the Germans again and again went very little ballyhoo. They, they didn't go in for ballyhoo. They went, did these things in a very serious way. Took uh, took up with a land plane, a Hockeboe Condor, from Tempelhof in nineteen thirty-eight, and flew non-stop to New York. At an average speed of 155, I've seen it, sometimes 160 is given as the figure. Two days later, they turned around and flew back non-stop at 214. Again, it illustrates the difference. And that was a demonstration that this was the type of plane you needed, a land plane that could fly the Atlantic.
6: Ireland was to become, uh, certainly for a while, one of the great aviation corners of the world, as you know, based uh, on the, the very western tip of Europe. Shannon, of course, only ten years later became a very important... uh, The Shannon area, I should say, became a very important point because the flying boats came in and out of fines in the estuary there all through the uh, late 30s and during the the war years. And Baldonnel itself, which was important enough in terms of history, became even more so now because it it was the the source of the first successful east-west transatlantic crossing, and we're very mindful of that here in the Air Corps now.
2: Within a few months, von Hohnefeld was dead. Before that he wrote,
1: In our mind's eye we can picture the adventures and hardships of our lost comrades. We can sense how, perhaps, Princess Löwenstein and her gallant companions dived to a grave beneath the waves in mid-ocean. Had it not been for the masterly navigation of Curl and the airmanship of Fitzmaurice, our story might have been their story.
2: Curl only lived for ten years, but he is still remembered in Germany and there is a museum bearing his name. Colonel Fitzmaurice resigned his commission in the Air Corps. He kept the tenuous connections with the aviation industry, but he never really settled after the Bremen flight. He died on the 26th of September, 1965.
7: When I look today and see the operations over the North Atlantic, from Gander or LaGuardia to Shannon, which is our island, and these are plans coming in with a degree of regularity that might be compared with that of a railway operation. I am very proud to know that we did start something which had great significance insofar as human prejudice is concerned.